0: Our Old Testament lesson this morning is found in Nehemiah chapter 2. We are finishing that half of the chapter, beginning in verse 11, reading through verse 20, and then we'll have reference to the longer section in chapter 3, which is a bunch of names that I am not going to even begin pronunciating. Nehemiah 2, verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today, we come as needy servants. We need your spirit to enlighten our hearts and minds that you would lead us into understanding and truth. And we need your spirit to reinvigorate us this day, that we be refreshed by you. Take us deeper into your plans and purposes, all the promises that you've sworn in Jesus Christ to us. And may you renew our faith in him today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Unfortunately, the reading and preaching of the book of Nehemiah has often corresponded with capital campaigns and building projects. One friend laughed at me when I told him what my plan for the fall was. And he says, yes, well, you have a building project on. So, of course, you're going to preach through Nehemiah. His restructuring of the walls of Jerusalem correspond with bricks and mortar for many of us who have been in the church for any time. And I must confess, it's very tempting (laughs) to put that heavy burden on your conscience that in order to finish what we have going on right now, that we preach in that way. But that also wouldn't be the better part of faithfulness (laughs) because such a one-to-one correlation in the building of Jerusalem's walls does not necessarily equal or equate into physical church buildings today. We have the old covenant promises fulfilled in Jesus, and of course we must read all of that material and understand all of that through the lens of Jesus Christ, and that's how we're approaching the book of Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah's devotion to the restructuring of the wall, that best translates today into our devotion to the renewal and reformation of the people of God. It is the people of God, the church, that God makes promises to today. And he says, just as he said of old, that he would dwell with his people in Jerusalem. So now he promises to dwell with us, especially in our corporate assembly, wherever we are gathered. This is the promise of God. And Nehemiah, he called on God to make good on that promise. And this is why he went back to the city of Jerusalem, as we saw in chapter 1. And he gave himself to seeing the city renewed. Everything was turned upside down. The promise of God said one thing, but the reality was another. And so Nehemiah prays, and he asked God to put it right side up. This is what chapter 1 records for us. And this is what church renewal is always built on. It is built and founded on the promises of God. It's not built and founded upon a particular leader. It's not built and founded upon anyone's charisma. It's built and it's founded on the promises of God, that those promises are true, they're good, and they're sure. Nehemiah takes them up in prayer, and he invites us to do the same today as we seek the renewal and the reformation of the church. As we move into the second half of chapter 2, we witness specifically how this promise of God takes shape on the earth. That it's not just a promise that remains in heaven, a word that he's spoken. It simply doesn't remain in our ear, but how it actually takes shape. And that promise takes shape or it's actualized as God's people invest themselves in that promise. And this is what's crucial for us this morning as we look at Nehemiah 2, as we look also into chapter 3, is to understand what this investment requires of us, how the promise takes shape. In the brief moment we have ahead of the Lord's table, there's four things that Nehemiah leads us into about this investment. First, we see that church renewal requires patience. Just the broad setting of the book of Nehemiah. We always have to remember that this book is paired together with the book of Ezra that's just in front of it. Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries and working together for the renewal and reformation of the church there in Israel. But this story goes back further and this is where Ezra begins in chapter 1 is telling the story of the exile of Israel from the city of Jerusalem. Due to their own unfaithfulness and their idolatry and their leaving God, they were sent as a measure of discipline to Babylon. The Babylonians came and sacked the city, took the people into exile. That was 586. 538, the people are restored at least partially to the city of Jerusalem. They begin building a temple that's not completed though, Until 516, can you imagine the questions that pastor got? When are we getting back in? They didn't have Christmas, but, you know, I mean, they were asking something similar. You know, is it going to be Hanukkah this year? 516, the temple was completed. The efforts continued. There were false starts and there was unfaithfulness. There were moments of courage and bravery. But then we find ourselves... All the way into 458 when Ezra arrives. He was a priest who was well trained in the scriptures. He shows up seeking to minister to the people to seek their renewal. And Ezra finds himself stalemated for something like 13 years. Nehemiah arrives in 445 B.C. 13 years after Ezra. We've seen that these two short books cover an expansive amount of history. It tells the story from 586 to 445. And friends, what what this highlights for us is that the renewal and reformation of the church is an ongoing project. And God is committed to it. And it requires incredible patience. That in our Western mentalities with our iPhones and with all the instant technology we have, we have to understand that the church is not an instantaneous outcome. That what we desire to see there doesn't just happen on the spot because we decide it's going to. That it's a spiritual work that God is committed to. And he invites us to be committed to, but it requires incredible patience as it unfolds over time. Now the second thing that we see about this investment that God invites us into, you find in the passage in verses 11 through 16, we see that church renewal... Requires assessment and planning. If you follow in verse 13 in particular, Nehemiah writes, I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire simply telling us of Nehemiah's night excursion in which he rode around the city of Jerusalem. He goes all the way around tracing the wall and makes it back in through the valley gate. He sees the utter destruction. But it's important for us to recognize a very sensitive balance that we've seen in the book of Nehemiah so far. Because in chapter 1, Nehemiah begins with prayer. In fact, we said it's not just one prayer, but four months of prayer. And then as he's before the Persian king, one of the most powerful men in all the known world at that point, Nehemiah prays and then makes his request that he be sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city of his fathers. And so we see Nehemiah giving a priority to prayer, but he doesn't do that exclusively. And sometimes it is tempting for us in the church To become a bit hyper-pietistic, in which we simply want to give privilege to prayer and say that everything else doesn't matter. But what we learn here from Nehemiah is that wise planning and assessment are equally part of the equation. Yes, prayer receives the priority in terms that it must be first, in which we're calling on God to make good upon his promises. But then Nehemiah goes about his executive functions in which he has to wisely look at things and plan And these two things are always part of the renewal of the church in which God makes promises. And we pray and call down on those promises and ask him to make it good. And then he calls us out into the field to take up with our hands the work of the kingdom. And this is what Nehemiah is entering into. And so these are allies. They are not enemies. That, yes, we pray, of course, and we pray hard. And we give priority to that prayer on the first thing. But then we go to work And we get the dirt underneath our fingernails, and we roll up our sleeves, and we sweat. And that is what the renewal of the church requires of us. Now, the third piece we see to this investment, you find in verses 19 and 20. And we see there that church renewal always must endure opposition. If you follow in verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? These three men that are mentioned, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Gershom, they represent three different governors of the districts that were around Jerusalem, to the north, to the east, and to the south. And so the message here is being communicated very clearly that Nehemiah was surrounded by opposition. He was getting it from every side. There was no one in the region who was favorable. In chapter 2, in verse 10, this is what we learn. But when Sanballat and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. They were concerned by this for many different motivations. And so what they entered into was a campaign to shame those who were going to be involved in the renewal and reformation of the church. And so they jeer them. They cast uh, aspersions on them. They say negative things. And what they're attempting to do in all of that shame is demoralize the people. that They would not engage in the work that Nehemiah had proposed to them. He had put out an audacious plan. He had invited them to come and build. They had said they were going to do so. And so Sanballat and Tobiah and all their other associates, what they commit to is to demoralize and undermine what was happening. Several years ago, I was speaking with a friend who was engaged in a work of church revitalization. He was an elder in the congregation and their preceding pastor had left, and things were somewhat in shambles in the church. It was a very difficult time. But there were a core of people who were very committed to the work. They believed that the church would have a new day. It had a great history and past, and they thought that those days could be restored. They were trusting the promises of God. But of course, during such a situation, there were tensions in the congregation. There was a lot of infighting. There were arguments and disagreements. The new pastor was elected. He showed up on the scene, and during his first week, some people announced that they were already going to leave. One member famously said to my friend, we're out of here. But then the thing about the we're out of here was that this particular person, he was a member of a larger family, three generations of people in the church. We're out of here, and our family is not far behind. (laughs) Almost as if it was a threat. And then the derision didn't stop there. There was so much shame being cast on the congregation that others were talked to and rumors were spread and things were said that were incredibly unhelpful. And friends, when we engage in the work of church renewal, we take on the church's shame, we take on the church's failures. And what we have to then say is that, yes, we identify with the church because we believe the promises of God belong to the church, even despite all her unfaithfulness, despite all of her failures, that we don't believe in the church because of the church itself. We believe in the church because of Jesus and what he has said to the church, that through the church he would bless the world, and through the church he would would give forgiveness to the church, that this would be the place of his grace. And so this is why we commit to the church is because God has made promises to it. This is why we endure opposition because we know that God makes promises to the church and so we can commit to it in all of our shame. And the final piece, though, to this renewal, we find in verses 17 through 18, we see that church renewal requires everyone's commitment. Nehemiah makes the invitation in verse 17 for everyone to join, and then in verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And this was the response of the people of God, as they received the invitation from Nehemiah, they said, let us rise up and build, and then it's recorded for us, they strengthened their hands for the task. Chapter three then records what unfolds. All the people that were there in the city systematically then surround the city. They go about various tasks, and it's a diverse group of people, but chapter three records at least 40 different sections of rebuilding that were taking place. There were merchants and rulers. There were sons and daughters. There were priests and lay people. Everyone was joined together in the work. They had diverse tasks, and they certainly represented a diverse cross-section of society. But this is the one thing that united them. They had a solidarity of purpose They were joined together in one accord, moving in the same direction, seeking the renewal and the reformation of the people of God under the promise of God. This is what they were committed to. So they arose and they built. We learn, of course, that there were a few dissenters. We're told in verse 5 that the nobles did not join in the work. And friends, this is just always the case. Some people are going to shrug their shoulders And they will say, well, we'll see if it works. Or perhaps they'll say, well, we tried that before. Or it's nice that you're young and have energy. Whatever it might be, aspersions will be cast. Opposition will be faced. But the glorious thing about the church is when the people of God do take up his promise, they pray and they believe, and then as one person begin to act, and it's the greatest moments of unity and togetherness and life and vitality that you can actually find in the church. When we commit together, with all of our diversity, though, that we share in that solidarity of purpose, and we give ourselves to the difficult work of building the kingdom, it's not easy. There are setbacks. There are frustration. There is real opposition, There are problems. There are things that we ourselves have to overcome, as we'll see in the chapters that lie ahead. And so one of the main final questions for us as we look at all this is, what is it that motivates all that? What motivates that effort? What motivates us to be patient with the work of God? What motivates us with the endurance it takes in the opposition that we face? What motivates us in the commitment that it takes for all of us to join together with one purpose? And we find this, why it's all worth it, what motivates us in verse 20. So this is Nehemiah's response to his opponents. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And it's interesting to these outsiders who didn't belong to the church, who were not invested in the faith of the people of God, he says, You have no portion, you have no right, you have no claim on this God. Why do you meddle here? But he's saying the inverse to the church that you have a portion. You have a right and you have a claim. You have a claim to all the promises of God. That in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, the Apostle Paul tells us that all the promises of God are yes and they are amen to us. That is that they are true and they are sure. And you have a right, you have a portion, you have a claim on every one of those promises. That God will not fail to make good on them. That they are secured for you. By what Jesus has done on your behalf. And friends, this is what motivates the commitment. This is what motivates the patience. This is what motivates us to fight through all the difficulty that we encounter in the renewal and reformation of the church. Because we have a right. We have a claim. We have a portion in everything that God has promised. Because these promises are extreme. They're large. They're grandiose. They go beyond what the mind can imagine Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we cannot intellectually conceive of everything that God is going to deliver on. A new heavens and a new earth, a physical world made right, freed from sin, bodies renewed, no more corruption, no more pain, no more tears. The weapons of warfare will be built into productive instruments that help others. That's the world that God promises to you. You have a portion, you have a right, you have a claim on that. And that's what motivates us back into the life of the faltering church that always is in need of reformation and renewal, and that sustains us. And so let's look to God and let's ask him for help to that end. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are grateful and we give thanks for all your promises that belong to us in Jesus Christ. It is in his death and resurrection that these promises are sealed and secured for us. We are your children and you've called us to be committed to these promises and to the work that you are doing on the earth through the church. And so sustain us against all opposition. Sustain our patience as we wait upon you. Sustain us in the commitment that it takes and the hard work that comes. Sustain us in the planning and being wise. Help us in every way, God. We need your assistance. And we give thanks that in Jesus Christ it is our privilege to pray, that you welcome us to call upon you and all the promises that you've made, that our world. ...would become a bit like heaven, that it would be transformed and renewed even today. And so we call upon you this morning to hear us as we bring our supplications and intercessions to you. And so let's join our hearts together in silent prayer according to the following concerns. Let's pray for the advance of the gospel throughout the world, especially praying for our mission partner, Third Millennium Ministries as they seek to provide high-quality digital seminary education in multiple languages around the world for free. Let's pray for the good news of Jesus Christ to fill our city, asking God to bless our local ministry partner, First Coast Women's Services. Ask God to bless their efforts as they minister to men and women facing unplanned pregnancies in the Jacksonville area. Let's pray for our president, Donald Trump, that he and all others in authority will promote justice, restrain evil, and uphold integrity and truth in our nation. Let's pray for Chris and Molly Manchigaya while Chris is away on deployment with the Navy. Ask God to be a refuge for Chris and support Molly and their children in his absence. Let's pray for all those who are sick and suffering in our community this morning, asking that God will draw near to them. Let's especially remember Branson Bishop, Gar Garganius, Hector Harima, Jay Kirk, George Mitchell, and Carol Penland. And let's pray for the children and youth of our church, that they may grow in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and all people as they learn to trust and rely upon Jesus Christ. Let's especially give thanks this morning for the safe arrival of Kate Romine, born to Spence and Jesse on Friday morning. Ask God to bless this little daughter of theirs that she would love and serve Jesus all her days. And let's close saying the prayer our Savior has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done